From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we'll talk about Earth Day 2021 with Mark Hertzgard. But first, the George Floyd verdicts in Minneapolis on Tuesday. For that, we turn to Jody Armour. He's the Roy Crocker Professor of Law at the University of Southern California. He's been all over the media talking about Black Lives Matter and those verdicts. And he's got a new book out on race, language, unequal justice, and the law. It's called N-Word Theory. Jody Armour, welcome back. Good to be back with you, John. Well, we're speaking on Tuesday afternoon after the jury's verdicts in the trial of Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin charged with the murder of George Floyd. And we heard three words, guilty, guilty, guilty. Then we saw a police officer put in handcuffs in the courtroom and taken off to jail for murdering a black man. I think that may be a first in American history. What did you think? Our collective sense of relief. I think there was a collective sigh as if we had avoided a calamity. And the fact that we all, many of us, had that sense. I talked to many of my friends who talked about how nervous they were all morning since the uh, closing argument. Think about what it says, John, for us to be that anxious and nervous about the outcome of this case when we were looking at nine minutes and 29 seconds of an egregious video that was such an open and shut in so many ways. It was open and shut in the way that the Rodney King video was when we first saw it. But then we saw when the Simi Valley jury looked at that Rodney King video in 92, they acquitted those officers for what seemed like egregiously outrageous conduct. So we worried that the same thing might happen here. We remember that, you know, um, Walter Scott was shot six times in the back as he was running away from an officer. And we saw that on video and we saw a jury deadlocked despite that video. So there was a lot of anxiety about whether that could happen again here. And just the fact that we feel so relieved is an indictment itself of a system that we would be that worried about with respect to evidence this strong. Um, it tells us that sometimes Black America has been gaslighted by the rest of America. They were gaslighted by the Simi Valley jury in the first Rodney King verdict. They were gaslighted constantly about whether what we see with our own eyes is really racism. And so this is one time that Black America's sense of reality and that jury's sense of reality lined up and also our sense of justice. And let's look at what else it took to get us to this verdict. Millions of people took to the streets last summer demanding justice for George Floyd. For weeks in every city in town, every state in the country. And before that, we had years of organizing by Black Lives Matter, showing how to do it even when the going was tough. It took a lot of work, unprecedented in American history, the biggest demonstrations in American history, the most sustained, the most diverse, the most geographically distributed, it took all that to get us to today. Yes, we have to remember that after this initial homicide, there wasn't going to be any action taken against Derek Chauvin from all appearances. It took people going to the streets 
It took urban unrest. It took, the, it took what people wanted to call rioting, if you will, in order to get um, the officials in Minnesota to even indict Derek Chauvin in the first place. So when I see people like the Attorney General of Minnesota now standing out there with the prosecutors and all of them, you know, kind of uh, doing a victory lap, you know, as if their exertions are what got us here. No, the exertions that got us here were the people in the street who put their necks on the line, their liberty on the line, and often suffer traumatic injury as a result. And they made it so that um, Keith Ellison and the attorney generals and the prosecutors had a case that should have been a slam dunk, John. Okay, if we're setting the bar this low, that we're going to feel triumphant and celebrate, you know, a conviction when the evidence is nine minutes and 29 seconds of a video that shocks the conscience, then that's a very low bar. And let's also honor Darnella Fraser, the 17-year-old black girl who kept that video running on her cell phone on May 25th. Must have been a horrible experience for her. Her And her testimony in the trial was so eloquent. It's not just the technology. It's the person who was there, who was willing, who was able to do it at undoubtedly a great personal cost to herself. Great personal cost, John, and you as a journalist know that actually a lot of the Black Lives Matter movement has been driven by street level journalism, right? By people bringing information to all of us in this form, often at great personal sacrifice. And so you're right, you know, I hope that she is recognized as, you know, the kind of public servant that she is having made that, pub, that, that personal sacrifice. I do, I'm not so crazy about hearing politicians and others say that George Floyd made a sacrifice for racial justice. I've heard that too many times. He didn't make a sacrifice. He was going to the store trying to live his life and he was murdered according to the jury, right? He didn't make a voluntary sacrifice. So I, I worry about that characterization. So it's incredibly important that the jury found Chauvin guilty, but reigning in the cops is not going to happen through individual prosecutions like this. It's going to take some very big changes in America. Uh, for starters, uh, the House has passed something called the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, passed last April. This is kind of the beginning of what we need, and it begins by eliminating qualified immunity you're a law professor. Explain what that means. Yeah, that's a start. It is a modest start, but a start. Qualified immunity is a judicially created doctrine that insulates officers from liability for egregious conduct often. It, um, you could bring a suits against them for money damages, civil suits, but the court stepped in and said, no, you cannot recover money damages even if they violate your constitutional rights unless they violate it in exactly the same way that some other police officers violated it earlier. So it was a highly artificial, improvised judicial doctrine there just to insulate police from accountability. And if it's gotten rid of, it's passing won't be mourned, right? But that is not, that's but a small step that, uh, uh, toward the kind of goals that the people marching in the street over last summer had in mind.
Well, let me just review what else is in the George Floyd Justice for Policing Act that passed the House, creates a national database of police misconduct, so cops like Derek Chauvin won't get jobs in other departments. Good idea. Requires federal law enforcement officials to use body cams and dash cams. You have a, a, a footnote to that one. Yes, we had body cams in the Derek Chauvin case, for example. It took that brave journalist that you just talked about. Her footage is the footage that was the indictment, the damning footage. The officer's body cams didn't really give us any useful information in terms of this conviction. Uh, the... The House bill also uh, bans federal law enforcement from using chokeholds and bans no-knock warrants in drug cases. That's what killed Breonna Taylor. Those are good things. It's a start, John, but for example, take that last point. You know, banning no-knock raids is a good idea, but a much better idea is ending the war on drugs that the no-knock raids were used as part of. They're not ending the war on drugs. That's the real systemic racism factor, right? They're ending one of its, one of it, they're reforming it at the margins. And that's what the protesters, the grassroots activists have been saying. We gotta cut deeper and not settle for mere reforms, but for transformation. And there's one more thing that you've worked very hard on here in Los Angeles for the last year, and that's electing local district attorneys who pledge to treat police brutality like any other crime. Exactly. George Gascon, um, Chesa Boudin, Larry Krasner, uh, DAs around the country that voters are putting into office because the voters believe more and more that we have to have police accountability and criminal justice reform if we're going to really heal some of the divisions in this society. Much more far-sighted than the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that the House has passed, of course, is the Breathe Act proposed by the Movement for Black Lives. That, that's the proposal to shift resources away from the police to fund community programs to deal with problems at the roots of inequality and over-policing. Uh, some of the things on their list are sending uh, trained civilian professionals to be our first responders in mental health crises instead of heavily armed police, um, uh, dealing with uh, traffic enforcement by civilians rather than armed police who tend to escalate these into violent confrontations, dealing with low-level offenses by issuing tickets rather than arresting people, putting them in handcuffs, taking them away, sometimes killing them. Uh, these are the bigger steps is what we really need. That's what we really need. Dante Wright was killed over a, an air freshener hanging from his rear view mirror and some inspired tag, all right? In other words, he was killed on, a, on the basis of a pretext stop. And the, yeah. and the Supreme Court has said that it's all right for officers to engage in pretext stops. And what those are, John, is stop and frisks on wheels. That's what they are. They allow an officer who has a hunch that that young black man behind that wheel may be up to criminal wrongdoing, but that hunch doesn't rise to the level of a reasonable suspicion. And so he can't constitutionally pull that black guy over. But if he sees a air freshener hanging from his rear view mirror, now he has a pretext for pulling him over and acting on that, un that hunch that wasn't constitutionally sufficient before. So it invites that kind of racial profiling on the basis of pretext. 
And until we get police out of um, these traffic vehicle stops, you know, traffic enforcement, they're always going to come up to these traffic stops and believe in the myth of the dangerous traffic stop. They, they, they've been trained and they believe that their lives are in mortal danger every time they walk upon a motorist that they pulled over for a traffic violation, right? The fact of the matter is that's not close to true, that when you look at the statistics, uh, there are lots of other professions that are ahead of police in terms of mortality associated with the occupation, but they still have this belief. It makes them overreact in those situations. So the only way to prevent more accidents and tragedies coming out of those situations is to minimize those situations. Unbundle the police, get them out of traffic enforcement, and get them out of as many contacts with stereotype groups and members of stereotype groups as possible. I have to mention in this context, Philando Castile, my hometown of St. Paul. This is a guy who had been stopped on traffic stops, what, 40 times, 50 times, 60 times. Uh, and this was one more stop. His girlfriend is sitting next to him in the car. The baby is in the back seat. The girlfriend says to the cops, please don't kill him. And the cop kills him. John, I'm driving to school a couple years ago now to my torts class down exposition. And a car pulls up behind me. I see red and blue lights from a police car. I pull over. Nothing happens for five, then 10 minutes. Here comes a helicopter. Here comes more police cars. Here comes a foot patrol. Um, then he walks up to the car like 15 minutes later, looks in, sees me in a tie because I was getting ready to teach for class and a surprise. All he saw from the back was a big fro in what seemed like a car that a big fro shouldn't be in. And so I was I had to go through that helicopter. He thought I was a flight risk. And so it brought in a helicopter. All right. And the foot um, patrols. Right. And I had to go in and teach my class with that kind of trauma, thinking about, you know, kind of. Um, what a br close brush that was unnecessarily. And that black tax is what black folks pay routinely day in and day out. And that is, can only be minimized when you minimize the opportunities for our violence workers, which is what police are. We give them a Glock with live ammunition, a stun gun, a billy club, um, you know, mace and handcuffs. They're violence workers. We have to minimize the contacts between those violence workers and members of stereotype groups. So today we had three guilty verdicts. We saw a cop taken away in handcuffs for murdering a black man. Your closing thoughts today. Undeniably, we have something that we can feel good about. We can feel relieved, but I don't want to feel relieved. I don't want justice to be my sense of relief at having, if you will, dodged the bullet of injustice, having avoided a catastrophic miscarriage of justice and saying, as long as we do that, we can feel good about ourselves. So I'm tempered in my, in my triumphalism by, you know, sober recognition of how much work we still have to do. Jody Armour of the USC Law School. Jody, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much, John. It's Earth Day, three days of climate action culminating on April 22nd. For comment, we turn to Mark Hertzgard. His writing about climate change and politics has appeared in The New Yorker, The Guardian, The New York Times, and Scientific American, as well as The Nation. And he's been a regular commentator for the public radio program's Morning Edition and Marketplace. 
He's published seven books that have been translated into 16 languages, most recently Bravehearts, Whistleblowing in the Age of Snowden. And he's executive director of Covering Climate Now, a global consortium of hundreds of news outlets reaching 2 billion people with news about the climate emergency. And he's the nation's environmental correspondent. We reached him today in San Francisco. Mark, welcome back. Always good to be with you, John. You are urging us to use the term climate emergency rather than talking about climate change or the climate crisis. Why is climate emergency better? Climate emergency is the right term to use because that's what the scientists are telling us, not just in their public comments, but in peer-reviewed journals now. Uh, and as you know, I've been covering climate change since 1990. So I've seen the way that the uh, discussion has evolved. And, you know, scientists are very, very careful about how they use language. And the uh, particular statement about climate emergency comes from some of the most eminent climate scientists there are, such as James Hansen, the former NASA scientist who really is the godfather of climate science in the modern era, at least. It was his U.S. Senate testimony in 1988 that first put the global warming issue on the public agenda when he said, you know, climate change, human-caused climate change is happening. And uh, so he's one of them. Sir David King is another one of the very prominent scientists who talk about a climate emergency. Uh, David King, for many years, was the chief science advisor to the British government and crown. And I could, you know, literally name you thousands of others. In fact, at our website at Covering Climate Now, uh, we have a fact sheet that lists all the different uh, scientific backing for this idea that this is a climate emergency. And among them is a, a statement that has now been signed by some 13,000 scientists around the world wow. that talk about climate change as an emergency. And the reason that it's important to say emergency, I think, uh, now speaking as a, as a reporter, is that you know, the word emergency it conveys the need to act immediately. It's not just a climate problem. It's not even a climate crisis only. It's an emergency. Because why? Because like with a heart attack, you need immediate reaction. You need immediate treatment. It's, you know, if you get a bad cancer diagnosis, for example, if you go to the doctor the next day or two days later, it's probably not going to change the outcome that much. Whereas if you suddenly have a massive heart attack, you need to get to a hospital within minutes. And that's what the scientists are trying to get across, that there's no more time for half measures. There's no more time for delays. The house, our planetary house, is literally on fire, and we have to act like that. And so that's why um, in the lead up to Earth Day, covering climate now and eight of our core news outlet partners, including, of course, The Nation, which was a co-founder of Covering Climate Now, along with Columbia Journalism Review and The Guardian and a number of other Scientific American you mentioned, we've all signed a statement and invited our fellow journalists to do the same. And this statement essentially just says, it's time for journalism to recognize that the science says we face an emergency and we as journalists should be responding accordingly. You know, good journalism is grounded in fact. And uh, in the case of climate, most of those facts or many of those facts are science. So it is not advocacy. It is not partisanship. It is not activism to talk about this as a climate emergency. That is 
journalistic and scientific fact. And we in the news media should be uh, treating it accordingly. Well, let's talk about the activism side, Earth Day, April 22nd. Earth Day is the world's largest recruiter to the environmental movement. EarthDay.org says it works with more than 75,000 partners in 190 countries and that more than a billion people now participate in Earth Day activities, making it the largest civic observance in the world. The official Earth Day events this year are organized into what they call five pillars. They are the Canopy Project, Food and Environment, The Great Global Cleanup, Climate Literacy, and a, sci a Citizen Science Initiative. What can you tell us about the five pillars? I think the important thing about Earth Day, as you say, it's, you know, it's long been a kind of a recruiter to the movement. Let's remember the history of Earth Day. Uh, 1970, 20 million Americans went into the streets around Earth Day, and it scared the bejesus out of a sitting president named Richard M. Nixon. Richard Nixon had never been much of a tree hugger, to put it mildly, <laughs> and yet he was determined to run for re-election in 1972. And, of course, there were a lot of protests in the United States at that time. And previously, those protests had been mainly about the Vietnam War and the civil rights uh, movement. But with Earth Day in April of uh, 1970, Nixon saw something different. He saw that the people, those 20 million people who were out in the streets, they weren't the long-haired hippies. They weren't the black people who were demanding their civil rights. These were librarians, these were school children, these were church ministers' wives. This was middle America saying, we want clean air, we want clean water, etc." And Nixon, whatever you think of his policies, was a very shrewd politician. And so he decided at that point that he, for his reelection purposes, had to take the environmental issue away from the Democratic Party. And as a result, he pushed through and signed with the Congress uh, support. He pushed through uh, environmental laws that to this day, John, remain, at least on paper, the strongest environmental laws in the world. And the 1970s was an era of uh, very strong federal action on the environment. And so I think that's the lesson that we really need to see out of Earth Day is that what, what creates real change is not just saying, oh, we... we hope that the world is a greener place. It's getting out in the streets and scaring politicians to do the right thing. Because otherwise, you know, I have a certain amount of sympathy for the politicians. They, they are always being pushed and pressured by big money, whether it be the oil industry or the pharmaceutical industry or whatever. That's part of political life. And the only way that a president can turn down Exxon or turn down Peabody Coal, whoever it is, is to say when you get that phone call from the CEO, uh, as the president inevitably does, say, listen, I'm, I'm sympathetic to what you're saying, sir, but I have 20 million people in the street here, and I have got to respond to that as well. So to me, that's what is uh, the most important lesson about Earth Day. And we see that carried forward today, I think primarily here in the United States by the work of the young people around the Sunrise Movement who you know, sat in on that, sat in in Nancy Pelosi's uh, 
office in 2018 after the congressional elections. And then, of course, Greta Thunberg and the Fridays for Future movement internationally, where literally millions of young people skipped school and went into the streets to protest generational injustice. You know, lately, you know, we've, we've rightfully finally started to talk a lot more about racial justice in the United States, about gender justice, about economic justice. What Earth Day and the activists, the young activists today are talking about is something that we don't talk about enough in public, which is generational justice. Because of what the current generation and especially the privileged and the powerful within the current generation have done, these young people, including my 16-year-old daughter, are now condemned to a very, very difficult future, even if we do everything right from here on out with climate, which we're far from doing. And these young people are getting into the streets and saying, enough, we are protesting against this and you have got to do better. So to me, that's the real exciting thing about Earth Day, that, that spirit. It's not so much those five pillars, those are great. And I, I you know, look forward to all the kinds of activities that will doubtless be unfolding around the world on that. But to me, more important is the spirit of protest that's behind Earth Day. This is not just feel-good stuff. This is, you know, life and death politics. And for the first time in four years, we have a president who is responding to the millions of people making these demands. On Earth Day, April 22nd, the Biden administration is hosting a global climate summit. Biden is appealing to 40 world leaders seeking new commitments from the world's biggest carbon emitters to fulfill the 2015 Paris Agreement by taking bold action to slash greenhouse gas emissions in the next 10 years. The uh, United States is expected to unveil its own national plan. I should say we're speaking on Tuesday about something that's going to happen on Thursday. We're not sure right now what Biden will say is the Americans' goal for cutting greenhouse gas emissions over the next 10 years. What do you think it is likely to be? What do you think it should be? You're quite right that it is a, a breath of fresh air, quite literally, to have a climate realist in the White House. Um, but we have to remember that to the rest of the world, they look at the United States, and of course they welcome Joe Biden being president rather than Donald Trump. But they also recognize that the United States political system allowed the last four years of worse than non-action on climate. And so there's a certain amount of, of uh, skepticism uh, or a little bit of, you know, state of Missouri, like, show me. Uh, so I think Biden and his team uh, have got to really step up big and uh, not just at the uh, climate summit, the Earth Day summit, but through the rest of this year leading up to November, the next UN meeting, where really that's where the Paris Agreement goals are supposed to be strengthened. So much of the media coverage to date in the United States, though, has kind of followed the usual deferring to Washington line that, oh, the United States, John Kerry, the secretary's, sorry, the, uh, the climate envoy for Biden, he's now been around the world and he's pushing all these other countries to do better. Wait a minute. We're the ones who need to be pushed to do better. We're the ones who dropped the ball the last four years. So I hope that my colleagues, as we cover this story, um, are, are a little more uh, reflective about that. Now, as you mentioned, 
the Biden administration <clears throat> seems to be floating off the record that they will make what they call a very ambitious announcement <clears throat> on, on at the Earth Day summit. And what they're talking about is something like cutting the uh, U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by 50 percent compared to 2005 levels by the year 2030. That is roughly in line with what the UN climate scientists said is necessary in their last major report, which came out in October 2018. And that was a report that some of uh, our listeners may recall. It's, it sparked a lot of headlines about how we have 12 years left to basically avoid climate catastrophe, which is a slightly misleading headline, but it is definitely true that we have got to slash these emissions very immediately. Again, why is it an emergency? Because these emissions reductions have to happen now, not next month, not next year, now. And uh, so I think that uh, one other great thing about Biden is that he clearly understands the science and he has assembled a team of people across the federal government that will be integrating climate into everything from national security to the United States Treasury to housing, et cetera, et cetera, not just energy, not just transportation. Those are all good. And I think it's also very interesting that the Biden administration in general seems to have learned a lesson from the Obama years. Obama uh, bent over backwards to try and get consensus with Republicans on Capitol Hill, which was a bit uh, of a um, impossibility given that the Republicans had made it clear literally on the first day of, of Obama's term and uh, time in the White House that they were committed to his presidency being, quote, a failure, as Mitch McConnell said. So Biden is not waiting for that non-existent Republican consensus. He's welcoming them to be part of it if they want to, but he is not going to let Republican intransigence stop him. And so I think um, whatever uh, the Biden administration announces at the Earth Day Summit, the real question is what happens on Capitol Hill? How much can you push through? And there is where, again, the spirit of Earth Day is so important because there will be a lot of politicians, a lot of office holders on, on both the Senate and the House who, um, can be pushed on this. Again, the conventional media narrative is, oh, you know, the Republicans are going to be completely against anything on climate. Well, you would have thought that about Richard Nixon in 1972. <laughs> and uh, I think what you see from the 2020 elections is that, uh, you know, it was young people and especially Sunrise Movement activists, young people and people of color who delivered the winning margin of victory for Biden uh, and some of, some other down ticket Democrats, but especially in states like Georgia and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. So I think politicians are aware that the winds of change are shifting now and that you do not want to be looking like you are against climate action. Even a majority of young Republicans, and by young I mean under the age of 40, now say in the social science research, they want action. They're worried about climate change. They don't entirely understand all the, the specifics of it, but they know that something bad is happening and they want to hear more news about it, which is part of the reason that uh, covering climate now exists, but uh, they also want action. And so I, I, that's what I'm going to be watching as a, simply as a reporter on this is the battle in Washington and whether Republicans are really going to be as um, intransigent as they've been in the, in the past four years. One final thing you mentioned Biden's team. There's one guy who's fascinating, who Biden has appointed, Jerome Foster. He's an 18-year-old climate activist who Biden appointed to a White House group working on climate policy. Tell us a little about Jerome Foster. 
That's a wonderful story, John. I'm so glad you brought it up. Uh, and I commend, by the way, uh, look at the Guardian uh, story about Jerome Foster. The Guardian, I, I have to say, is our lead media partner at Covering Climate Now. And we chose them for that because they do the best climate coverage in the English language. And this is a perfect example of it. They knew about who Jerome Foster was back when Jerome Foster was protesting outside the White House, solo, by the way, uh, starting with, uh, inspired by Greta Thunberg's Fridays for Future movement. And Jerome was a young man, I think at that time he was 17, sitting alone outside of the White House, holding up his climate strike, African-American uh, uh, kid, and uh, very committed to all this stuff. And somehow, I mean, I think it's a great uh, sign of Biden's openness uh, to this stuff that that they appointed Jerome to be part of their advisory group. And this is something, you know, the Nation magazine, let's be honest, we were not happy with Joe Biden as the candidate. And a lot of us you know, preferred a different candidate, many times Bernie Sanders. But you have to give Biden credit that last summer he allowed himself to be pushed by the Sunrise Movement and these younger activists towards and, and Bernie Sanders, too pushed Biden to have a much more aggressive climate policy than he did. When Biden was a candidate at the start of 2020, he had such a weak climate policy that I think Greenpeace gave him a, a D minus. <laughs> but to his credit, Biden saw both the science and he saw the politics of it, that young people really wanted more. And, you know, in politics, that's what you want in a democracy. You want a politician to respond to that kind of organized pressure. And I see Jerome Foster as a symbol of that kind of pressure and how being out in the streets, literally, as he was for 58 weeks, can bring you into the halls of power, which again, goes back to the lesson of the original Earth Day. Get out in the streets, folks, if you want real political change. For more on Earth Day 2021, you can check out earthday.org and look at Covering Climate Now. Mark Hertzgard, read him at thenation.com. Mark Thanks for your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Always a pleasure, John. Thanks for having me. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. We'll be right back.